What's happening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with the Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer. So today, I welcome Shane Danger Coleman from Sustainable Reefs in Australia. What's happening there, Shane? Uh, hey, go, mate. Um, yeah, we're just um, upstairs at, at work, the Sustainable Reefs facility, and um, yeah, just uh, it's a fairly standard work day. Um, at the moment, we're doing a big spring clean. So, uh, well, the <laughs> boss is down there with his hands wet, and I'm up here doing a live stream. So I kind of get out of it. For yeah. A while. Well, we're gonna uh, <laughs> we're gonna you're gonna give us a little bit of a tour uh, pretty soon there, just to kind of give folks an idea of the uh, facility. Um, before we do that, though, let me just thank the sponsors for this show, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. Really appreciate these companies supporting the live stream, and I also appreciate all you folks out there tuning in and as always please drop your questions and comments in the chat we'd love to make this uh interactive and of course uh please hit that like button and subscribe to the channel while you're at it that would be awesome so uh shane man it's like friday morning there right i mean you've uh you're 15 hours ahead of me here in uh in on the east coast of the united states what uh so, yeah so what what uh what does kind of like a typical work day for you uh entail like in that facility there what's uh something different every day or yeah it, it can be it can be anything from packing an order making a stock list uh currently we're building some new systems so it's a whole big system that i think it'll be about ten thousand liters when it's finished um and a section of that will actually be dedicated to the reef legacy project the biobank that you spoke to dean yep. miller about um so that's uh we're trying to kick that system up pretty quickly so we can take some of their their corals on um but otherwise we need to expand because the the demand for frag corals is getting up there so we need more space um, but yeah, we can be plumbing, fiberglassing, fragging corals, doing online stuff like this. Or yeah, the, the, the day is so varied. You never really know what you're going to do until a few hours before it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, Keeps it interesting. So Shane, just uh, for, for the folks out there that don't know what uh, sustainable reefs is all about, can you just kind of give a broad, uh, you know, general overview of what uh, you guys are all about? Um, right. Well, it's a, it's a coral farm. Um, we stopped wild collection uh, probably two years ago now. So we rely solely on the corals that we have and we sometimes buy in new, uh, I guess you'd say brood stock or something if it's, a, if it's a new different color or something interesting that we don't have on the farm that we can bring that in and we can then grow that out. So everything here is grown over multiple generations as we call them. So frags from frags from frags. Um, and that's that side of it. But the other, the main reason for the, for the existence of this coral farm is that it's a R&D or research and development for Coral Essentials, the product line that we make out of, um, it's, we research and make it and make sure that it works with corals and test it in a, on a large scale. Um, so that's pretty much the, the majority of the stuff here is testing chemicals. So Cool. So I mean, how how um, how long have you been in the um, reef keeping keeping industry? What uh, what was your journey like up until uh, where you're at today? Um, so I guess you'd say professionally or permanently in the well, you shouldn't say permanently. You never know what's going to happen, but uh, professionally in the industry and now for about five years. 
Uh, but prior to that, it was about 10 odd years of just having sort of have my toes dipped in or knee deep into it, working with uh, other wild collection companies just because they were family friends and, um, uh, and just dabbling in the industry, but not, not anything heavy, but now that I'm yeah, well invested into it. So uh, that, and then as a hobbyist, I think all up maybe 20 odd years, 20 something years um doing as a hobbyist but uh yeah so that's and, and up the leading for that what i was basically a vehicle body manufacturer engineering type trade um welding and all sorts of things like that uh, and that was what i was doing and i'd come home to a reef tank and yeah i just got more and more invested in it as the years went by and i was able to throw that career away yeah and start this yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, so, all right, I think um, I think I want to uh, ask you to give us a tour, but before we do that, man, got to get this out of the way. Um, can we assume that your middle name Danger was not your given uh, middle name, or was it? What's the story behind that? Uh, no, it's not my not my given middle name, but um, I, I've been. It's it's on the the very long to do list of things I'd like to change it legally. Um, I don't hate my middle name, but I don't know. It's just the the danger thing. I, it come around when I was working in the vehicle body industry, and I don't even know where it just stuck. And now heaps of my friends just refer to me as Danger <laughs> or Shane Danger. So, um, it, but they don't even use my last name anymore. It's just Shane Danger. Danger's sort of become a last name now, not even a middle name. But um, yeah, <laughs> it's uh. But no, it's uh, yeah, it definitely wasn't uh, given that at birth. But it would have been cool. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a kick-ass uh, first name. Um, yeah. I do do a lot of stupid things. I was going to ask you, like, you know, like, is that something so, that you, do you try to live up to that nickname? Like, especially when you're diving yeah, or something. Yeah, there's always something something risky or stupid to do. Got to keep the adrenaline up. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. I got you, man. All right, so. Yeah, if, if you can give us kind of a tour of the facility, that would be awesome. And then we can kind of like um, yeah. know, ask you a bunch of questions. So, uh, yeah, take it away. All take right. it away, man. So let's head downstairs <laughs> and uh, do a bit of a camera flip. Um, oh, there's a lawnmower going on outside. Yeah, oh, we hear some. There we go. Sorry about that. Um, right, so anyway... This is um, the one of the uh, tanks. We've got the lights up at the moment because we're all trying to get in here and, and work around. There's a lot of like freshly fragged Generation 2 A-cams. So are, like, are those LED strip lights? Is that what those are? Yeah. Um, <laughs> these are Illumagic Vitamini. Uh, we use a lot of them, as you can see. Yeah. Um, a lot of Illumagic lighting. But um, there's... Um, yeah, keep them. I'll try and oh, I should have killed the flow off first, but it's all right. Um, but yeah, there's a lot. I've just freshly organised this. We're just cleaning tanks and going through. But yeah, there's a lot of corals in here. Wow, man, that's awesome. And, um, I love the color coordination too. You know. Oh yeah, you've got to keep them all grouped up because if uh, you know you get your warfare and stinging going on, so everything needs to be in groups, and that helps me keep uh, check on stock numbers as well um so like certain corals i don't need too many of so i'll just keep like 30 of them and certain corals i need heaps of like lo red lobos so i always need to have heaps of that on hand um 
anything white plugs are freshly fragged like these so these are all uh acondastria patchy scepter um and they're all just grown so i uh nice. they've all grown from from frags and they're all encrusted over well, there's a pretty good one it's encrusted over that base there um lps fragging is my specialty that's uh and growing the lps um and that uh, this is the filtration system for the tanks behind me so all of those tanks there and the little end ones they're all this is a filtration for that so we've got a monstrous skimmer here uh-huh. uh that's a big a beckett drive skimmer with about a two meter or oh actually it's about nearly a seven foot head height on bubbles wow these are some test tanks that we run and i can isolate them and they're running different chemicals in at the moment that I think could be toxic to aquariums. Um, so we're going to see what they do to corals, basically. Um, we run big full pumps, a lot of people do. Uh, Biomedia reactor tower. Um, that's a 5,000 litre, but I don't know what that is in gallons. Sorry, divide that by 4,000. Yeah. 1,200 gallon, I guess. Um, that's our water storage for natural seawater. Um because uh, yeah, we we are lucky to live in North Queensland, so we have uh, the reef kind of at our doorstep. So you're just you're grabbing just, the water from the uh, reef. Yeah, yeah, and then we filter it through a micron filter and get all the little particles out of it, and we go from there. Um, that's there's a handy view box there. So these are oh, wow. a uh, a cans and whatnot. I mean, there's everything is quite. That's really hard to see. Hang on, let's just bring that out there. So yeah, everything we have, make sure it's all encrusted. Um, for goodness. So this is another system. Um, we're just filtered by a filtration over there. Um, different lights, entirely different ball game, because this is a uh, predominantly LPS system. Okay. Um, we do um, all of the, the encrusting Montes, Acros, that kind of thing, and Gonies. We treat Goniophora like um, Acro uh, here, but we feed it or target feed it. But yeah, Goni here just goes really, really well wow. along with Acro. So we do, they're all fully encrusted. And, but yeah, we. Uh, how long do you. Um, made that how long do you uh, typically grow out your LPS before you kind of bring stuff to market in terms of frags? I. I mean, it's not a necessity, but I really like to have my corals encrusting or growing. Um, like typical sale size is something that's wow. like that. Um, these here are freshly trimmed down because they actually overgrow to something like that. And that doesn't fit in our frag bags. So um, once they get overgrown, I just trim the excess off and turn it into new frags. Um, but um, it depends entirely on the coral as to what um, what basically we what time frame sorry yeah. um so yeah and then this system over here is what we call the soft coral system um it's predominantly leathers and zoanthids um recordia mushrooms at the back there and yeah just lots of zoanthids wow um and yes yeah, so, and this system here is the one we're building next i just finished this fiberglass sump I shouldn't say just, it's been sitting around way too long. And that's all going to a new system there. Um, and there'll be new tanks running off this way. But yeah, well, I will, um, that's pretty much 
the farm. Um, but um, yeah, feel free to ask any questions about filtration and such on that. But yeah, folks. Dr- it was I was trying to get I was trying to get out of the noise because the, <laughs> the the council is doing a, a a big cleanup out the front. Oh, gotcha. So, yeah, folks. Um, feel free to drop questions in the chat to uh, to Shane oh, Shane there and um, yeah. So and, we go ahead, man. Uh, we uh, we split the systems up for redundancy as well. So. Um, like if, if we have a problem with a certain coral uh, in one, well, say so every, every system. So there's currently three and there's about to be four that with the new one. Um, and every system has at least, uh, so like there'll be a majority of Acropora of one species in the Acropora system, but in, my, in the other system that I showed first, there's a backup copy of all that. So if something should happen to the majority, we have the backup copy as well and everything is done with redundancy because we have had disasters in the past where we've needed to call on uh well, we also do redundancy with um uh other local fish stores or things like that so anya that you had on on the show a little while ago uh, we share corals for backup for redundancy as well it's just a i guess it's a commonly done thing among hobbyists but among farms and shops you probably don't hear of it too much yeah, you know, uh, I see uh, both the men and Chris Meckley from ACI in the house, and um, you know, Chris and I were talking about uh, Reefer's Code. So that sounds like what you're talking about in terms of just kind of uh, yeah. making sure that you're banking corals with a uh, with another uh, shop, but reef keeping buddy, what have you. But it's a great idea. Yeah, definitely. And the, the amount of times that we've had to call upon that um and and vice versa we always if someone lost loses their coral don't worry i got you there's another one here it's yeah um so joshua j is asking how much biological media surface area is there compared to the total leaders of the farm um surface area i have no idea but uh on rough calculations that i did a few weeks ago is about one liter of media whether that be ceramic media or volcanic rock, we use, we actually have a really clean supply of volcanic rock here. Um, so, and it doesn't leach anything into the water like ions and manganeses and stuff. It does at start, but doesn't leach anything toxic into the water. So we have a really clean supply of that. Um, but yeah, for one uh, liter of media, there's roughly 27 liters of water. So there is quite a lot of biomedia in in this system, like, and yeah. we do feed heavily as well. Gotcha. Um, and, and that that tower is completely full of max spec um, ceramic balls, and then in that big black sump with the big tall skimmer in it, there's uh, quite a lot of baskets that are all covered in aeration under there. Uh, so we aerate the media and keep it all. all the air, air bubbles basically clean it. Gotcha. And, and, and that's your primary source in terms of the uh, filtration for the system, in terms of biological? Yeah, yeah. We don't we don't really carbon dose too much intentionally, like vodka, vinegar, sugar, anything like that. We uh, don't really need to. It's um, There's no phosphate reduction. The media handles everything. Um, I, I'm consistently on zero phosphate, mm. so I can feed a lot. Um, and that's just entirely due to the media. So. Gotcha. Um, NSB reefs, <clears throat> what would Shane use to filter less than ideal ocean water? I heard him mention micron filtering. Yeah, so we've got a, uh, you can buy these 
uh, they're basically a tube that you plumb water in the top and then back out the bottom. And they take, uh, think of them like a canister filter and they take the filter socks and they're a micron bag. So we can filter down to one micron and they just stack micron bags on top of each other and you just pass the 5,000 liters through it as a cycle. And um, yeah, that filters out little bits and pieces of anything that we don't want in there. Uh, we also shock the water with hydrogen peroxide as well. Um, it's uh, We use a 50% hydrogen peroxide and then uh, tip it, I think about 500 mils. It's a mil, one mil per um, 100 liters in that and we just shock it and then we aerate it and get the hydrogen peroxide out once it decomposes everything so that's how we we clean our water like that interesting i've never heard that term shocking the water with hydrogen peroxide that's um that's an interesting thing to do there um yeah i, I think it comes from uh shocking yeah so in uh, swimming pools we call it shocking with chlorine uh, so in, in their swimming pool thing like we, when you need to shock your swimming pool they call it shocking it with chlorine so i think that's just we, we've just adapted it from that that's all um so uh Amanda Meckley's asking, are you a halide guy? So we saw the uh we saw the uh the LED strips. Uh, but I did I think we uh we saw some halides right over the um few of those um They're um they're actually a max spec cannon, we call them. I, I think they're I think they're five hundred watts. They're um they're just like a, a single LED chip, kind of similar to what Kessel make but they're the max spec version of them. Uh, I quite like them, uh, but I'm not sure. We got those secondhand off a, uh, a, I guess it was, it's a private aquarium, but um, a very large one up here. And they were changing their lights up and we thought we'd just give them a go because they were quite cheap. Uh, I'm not sure what they retail at normally for the average aquarist, but um, they were, they were pretty cheap for us. So we decided to give them a go. And I, I like them. They're, yeah, they're pretty good. They're very simple. They're, they're much like the old original uh, Kessel 350s with just the blue and the white knob. You can turn one up and one down like that's or they're individually controllable on a blue and white channel, and that's it. Um, no fancy function. I want to ask you a couple more questions about lighting, but uh, Andy Bauman is asking, um, do you shock the water to avoid bacterial issues? Is that what you're doing that for? Uh, yeah, that and algae. So, um, yeah, viropsis and all those things. Hydrogen peroxide tends to pretty much nuke a lot of those things um, and oxidize it to kill it off. Uh, snail eggs, anything that could be free-floating in that water because it is natural and there are risks with using natural water. Um, I mean, the chemistry of it is quite good, but um yeah we don't know what's in it so we filter it shock it and then wait a little while and then it's ready to use so when when you bring now it sounds like you're not bringing in any more wild corals but um, i'm assuming that you're bringing in some corals from different facilities or, or maybe uh, other people yeah. in terms of swapping corals or whatnot and when you do that what what's your protocol in terms do you do anything to try to prevent any um you know bad bacteria from getting into your systems do you do any bacterial dips for those corals that are coming into your systems um, yeah, so we've got a little bit of a quarantine system in the front there. It's very simple, just like a little four-foot tank, um, and that's the quarantine tank. And um, as for, like, they'll sit in there for a couple of months if need be, just to check that no weird algae grows on them or they didn't come in with flatworms or something like that. Um, so, yeah, that's it's just a quarantine period. Uh, we don't treat prophylactically with any dips 
unless we need to. Like if, if something arises, then we'll treat it, but we don't really treat because. Well, you're, you're not doing any preventative bacterial dips. Not unless we need okay. to, because like it, it, if something, it, because it sits in the quarantine system for a couple of months, um, if something was nasty on that, we're going to see it in that time anyway. And if something comes up, we usually just yeet the coral anyway and get something, get a, a better version of it. Gotcha. Um, but uh, yeah, if it's salvageable, then yeah, I'll do some treatments with usually an iodine-based dip if it's bacterial or if, if it's possible to save. Some things you just, no matter what you do, whether if it's got brown jelly, I just, you know, I used to try and save, but it's just not. Yeah, it's uh, it's not worth the time. Yeah, I hear you. Um, yeah. And, and so cut the loss. What um, what pests do you uh, fear the most in terms of hitchhiking? You know, in on corals. Um. So originally, uh, when I first started here, the, all of the systems were linked as one system, mm. and we had, and this is why we're wild collecting as well. So, um, just mainly for the purpose of filling up the systems. But we had an acro-eating flatworm outbreak uh, among the farmed acros, and that was just devastating. So we spent probably a year dipping corals, just constantly shaking them off, trimming them, removing eggs. And when you've got about 5,000 mother colonies, <laughs> it's, it's impossible. Wow. So the, the solution to fixing acropora-eating flatworm was isolating the system and tipping bleach in it. Wow. That's the only way, and in my honest opinion, there is no possible way to fix acro-eating flatworm. That is the scariest thing for us. Yeah. Um, there was, we spent a lot of time, uh, and even, I mean, my my solution to fixing acro-eating flatworm is removing the food source. If there's no acro, there's no acro-eating flatworm. And that's exactly how we had to fix it. We literally deleted everything that was acropora, waited about six months wow. before anything uh, any acro went back in that system. And in that time, we separated the systems. So I split them down the middle and made that new filtration system in the corner and started from scratch, bleached three big systems and threw everything out because it was all acro. There's no saving it. It's just not worth the, the trouble. And, um, and But to see that, absolutely heartbreaking, to see all that hours and hours, years of work um, from acro-eating flatworm. The next most horrible pest we've had to deal with, which met with the same solution, no food, no no food source, no pest, was Monty eating nudibranchs. That was tough. And, yeah, and it, we could spend hours each day. So the only option was to remove the food source, and, uh, that, and it worked. Like, we have no pests now, so... Um, and now that that then those two big events in the history of sustainable reefs were the catalyst for a proper quarantine system, whereas we usually just used a, an incoming dip bucket um, and a visual inspection. But you're always going to miss something, so um, it's tough. Yeah, now that's not possible. It's tough. So, yeah. Um, yep. So I see Chris mentions uh, peppermint shrimp. I know that um, Chris has had luck with the uh, peppermint shrimp in terms of being a natural predator for the uh, the acro-eating flatworms. But I guess there's a particular uh, type yeah. of uh, peppermint shrimps. Have you ever, um, guys, tried that? And I think he mentions there's a, an Aussie yeah. species that's the best. Mm. Um, we have, I think you've got Lismata 
uh, Wordamani is your species. And we've got Lismata vitata. I don't actually know if there is difference in what they eat. Um, but again, acquire, we did try them and acquiring the numbers of them that would get it, I think they might just keep it under control but never actually cure yeah. it. And I think that's the case with any biological control. No creature is ever going to eradicate every last possible one, especially when you're dealing with little babies all over the acro. And also, if your coral has ever, if your acro has ever encrusted the egg crate, this is in a farm situation, then these uh, shrimps and fish, they can't get in and around the egg crate. So that's like kind of a bit of a procedure that we do now. We swap the egg crate trays out to brand new fresh ones. So there's no coral touching them. And that way we know if there is any pests. So we regularly do the, the, the tray swap. We put the trays in acid to dissolve the coralline off them and the, and the coral that's grown off onto them. Just a, another part of the protocol to keep things clean and pest-free. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Amanda is asking, uh, what are the most common pests that come in on LPS corals? Is it flatworms? Yeah, flatworms uh, on euphilias and fimbriophilias. Um, they're, they're pretty common. Um, lithophaga boring mussels are practically in every coral in the skeleton. And I, I still think they're the leading cause of most singular polyp coral death, like scully and desh. Mm. Um, I, that, so I, I trim the skeletons off to remove any of those and, um, make sure that those aren't in there. Uh, but yeah, that, and, um, I, I just say algae. Like uh, algae as an introduced pest or hitchhiker is probably one of the most overlooked as well. Um, it it's, can sometimes just be a tiny little, like a a, a root or a yeah. little tiny nub of an invasive macroalgae, and before you know it, you've got it everywhere and then you've got to put like some people will suggest a, a rabbit fish or something it's like ah, if you just trimmed the rock off to start with you don't have that problem um and that, that's another another part of the quarantine procedure like a coral doesn't go into our quarantine tank without a complete trim down like every part if it's not coral and not directly needed by that coral it goes it's straight on the saw um so what I mean by not directly needed by that coral is obviously uh, you've got a lot of skeleton that the flesh is attached to and that is needed by the coral. But if you go down a, a few millimetres into where the skeleton is essentially live rock, yeah, then that's not needed by the tissue. The tissue is not hanging on much further than a few millimetres down. So we remove everything that is not coral sponges algae coralline algae old rock that's attached to the like deeper down past the polyp just remove the lot and that eliminates a lot of um, pest algae issues as well so what happens uh, if something slipped through the cracks like let's say you get bryopsis into the system you know bryopsis is always something that's very tough to get rid of there's like no real no natural uh, yeah. predators i mean what what's your approach in terms of bryopsis do you guys uh you know use chemicals in that case we have used fluconazole in the past and um i i don't know whether and it's come yeah. back in in past times 
and then in the within the the tank moving and shutdowns, it's been treated and gone for now, hopefully. But that is is always in the back of our mind that something like that can come back. Um, and funny you should mention that is I have another test tank out there that's actually full of bryopsis at the mm. moment, and I've, I've been uh, tracking down pieces of bryopsis from local reefers. If they have it in their tank, I've been like, hey, can I just grab that bit of rock that with that on it and I put it in there? Because I'm go- currently going through some methods that also some treatments and urchins. There's supposed to be a few species of urchin that are supposed to destroy it. And I just recently heard a species of hermit crab that doesn't not only just knocks it off the top, but eats the root part out as well. So um, I'm trying to get my hands on some of those and just try some natural methods and hopefully confirm or deny some of these theories or anecdotes that certain things eat them um i've even heard of a uh, a reefer down in uh, another, uh down in brisbane at the other end of the state where anya is uh he has a rabbit fish that eats royals i've heard that and if they can yeah so i mean yeah we've tried rabbit fish and they don't eat it for us so we don't know whether it's based on an individual fish same as i've had blue tangs that eat zoas collateral <laughs> <laughs> like, damage yeah 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 um but uh let's see here oh um so all right let's um another question here uh becca bits was asking um yeah what kind of water testing do you do and how often so what's what what, what's important Um, to you guys in terms of parameters and water testing and all that sort of thing uh all of it (laughs) it's uh we use Triton, uh, so we're lucky enough to have uh, Triton. They, when Isan moved to Australia from his German lab, he actually just moved ten minutes down the road from us. So uh, they they moved to Cairns to do some more left of field studying of the reef, and uh, I'm not sure whether you've been able to catch any of the talks or any of the thing that Julian or uh, Isan have done about their intentions for moving to North Queensland, but they're going to be testing some really cool stuff. And uh, we're doing a little bit with them as well. Like a, uh, one coming up is uh, why is Tubapora um, skeleton red? Just doing some little investigations on just things like that that are they're a bit amusing and education as well. But yeah, so we use Triton and we test all of the elements that Triton do and we follow all of the, uh, but of course, it's we use our own own chemicals to adjust and everything. But we use their ICP service for that. Um, we also have a, like all your basic testing equipment here. We use a lot of salifert. Um, we have some ion selective probes that we use, but then none of those are currently in calibration. Um, and um, but otherwise, we pretty much run our reef tanks like you'd expect to see one of your. Yeah, hardcore reefers testing and chasing uh, elements, but we don't chase them too much. We, if you chase numbers, you'll never catch yeah. them. Yeah. So yeah, you got to find that balance between adding your elements between uh, adding your elements for their use, but not chasing a number with them. There's certain elements like uh, manganese that you can add that and add it and add it and add it more and you just almost never see a reading on it but um as long as you're adding it so that you know you put it in and um 
that's about all like we're happy with that because it's just one of those elements that burns out so quickly that it's not worth chasing uh, i want to th- and if you do chase it you'll poison your tank that's out, not so. good uh, yeah. i want to thank luis uh for his uh, super chat i'm going to get to the uh comment and the uh the question right after we finish talking about water testing but um what what uh you know in terms of the key elements that you guys pay attention to so do you do like monthly icp testing and then um change dosing accordingly and um you know if if that's the case what um when 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 you get back those triton tests what um do you kind of focus on first in terms of the key elements that uh, are most important to you um yeah so i mean we try for monthly uh we can do earlier um but for the most part it's we do a lot of visual te- uh, like visual looking as well like um after looking at corals so long and all day it's like certain elements that we can go yeah i think bromide's a bit low because oh. of this or that yeah but yeah at least monthly icp and then we do some adjusting we've got a, the apex tridents running on the that for just testing we don't let them control anything so the calcium alkalinity and magnesium are, are tested by the tridents every four hours. And so we, we dose that. Uh, so we adjust our dosing based on what the trident tells us yep. of our calcium, alkalinity and magnesium consumption is. And using the, the coral essentials stuff there, we've got it in 200 litre drums that we behind the other wall behind me. Um, and that's pretty elementally balanced anyway. So we don't usually have to make too many big adjustments with the results from an ICP test, um, it's usually very minor adjustments, usually bromide, strontium, potassium, sometimes iodine. It's about the most common ones we need to adjust um, across the different tanks, depending on what we grow in them. Gotcha. Um, do you guys um, do you guys look at fluoride? I know um, Chris, uh, I was talking with the, with Chris Meckley and, yeah. and um I know he doses a uh, fluoride and, and I started dosing fluoride and man, the blue tips on some of my acros are seriously yeah. popping. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely advocate for fluoride. So we use an ion selective probe for that. We're not admittedly, admittedly we haven't tested that in probably a couple of months. Um, but uh, yeah, so we, we do advocate for at least dosing for the bare minimum uh, or just adding some at least, Adding none is you, you, as you notice, you get a lot of more dull colors, blues and purples. Um, but yeah, if you, if you're at least just adding some, your coral is going to benefit. But yeah, if your ICP service doesn't actually test for fluoride, then it can make it yeah. difficult and you're just guessing a little bit, but yeah, that's why we have the ion selective probe. Cool. Um, so in, in terms of like uh, calcium, alkalinity, magnesium, what do you, what's, what do you guys like in terms of ranges? Do you, do you try to like mimic um, what's natural seawater or are you going uh, in a different direction targeting other levels? Uh, yeah, because we use natural seawater, we kind of uh, target what in that 5,000 liter drum downstairs, that uh, we kind of target what that is which is pretty consistently around 420 calcium, about 1350 mag, and uh, alkalinity is usually around seven, seven and a half, but we do see that lower. Um, and the alkalinity though, in the, so we, we, the calcium we target usually around 420 odd, magnesium around 1350. 
The alkalinity, though, we do bump up in the drums. So we bump that up before we add. So we buffer it before we do any water changes. Uh, otherwise, the alkalinity is around eight and a half, nine, just sort of mid-range between what's acceptable. Yeah, Chris uh, <clears throat> says flooring is scary since it is so hard to test, but 100% necessary in his opinion. Yeah, definitely agree. And yeah, and because it's hard to test, like I just, we just find adding adding the smallest amount, so the bare minimum uh, each day, and and that way you you it's underdosing, but at least it's there. Yeah, um, Andy ba Bauma is uh, saying that Fauna Marine and um, Oshi Oshimo test for um, fluoride. Um, yeah, Triton does not test for fluoride. No. Yep. Not at this stage, anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's, it's interesting. I guess you got to just be very careful with that if you're going to be dosing it. I, I believe it's actually not testable in ICP. I, I I could be wrong on that, but I believe that it's not actually an ICP test that's done when they test for fluoride. I could be wrong on that, so don't hold me to it. And I, I so I think that's why Triton actually doesn't do it because it's either a different machine and it's just not like time feasible. yeah i think um chris so, is saying the only way to test it is with uh i don't know what this is lcsms or icpms yeah so matt the icpms is uh the uh, mass oh. spectrometer so the next gotcha. one up but also yeah even those they're the running seawater through one of those machines <laughs> most labs just go whoa no <laughs> they're, they're very yeah so um uh, quickly in terms of what we're talking about you're talking about <clears throat> you know the alkalinity calcium magnesium uh you mentioned before that uh, a lot of times you're at zero phosphate um nitrate mm -hmm. what are you guys usually adding with nitrate um the SPS system down the far end, that's dosed. Actually, that's dosed for phosphate and nitrate. We have to add both of those in because the feeding doesn't keep up. Um, but I think that one's running at 2 ppm nitrate uh, consistently, and that's dose of it. Um, and I think my system was probably been a couple of weeks since I've tested nitrate, but it's usually a waste of time for me. That's pretty stable. Uh, but I think that's about two or three ppm as well. And the phosphate's generally zero, like the same before. But um, I feed about 500 grams of food a day. And that's uh, between uh, dry powderized ingredients, um, phyto, dried phytoplankton, and I use our wet, uh, well, they're whole seafood, so fish fillets, sardines, um, not the edible sardines, the, the pilchard style large ones, um, that and shellfish. And I just put it in a Nutribullet or a blender and just turn it to a paste. And I feed that to my system, as I call it. So, yeah, my system has all the squishy LPS corals in it. And my boss's system has the acro. We have different things that we focus on. Even though we're both in each other's systems, we just have this notion that it's mine and his. So. <laughs> Um, what about live uh, phytoplankton? Do you guys dose any of that? No, um, I would like to, but 
it's just one of those things. It's like, how much more can I cram into the day? The pain in the ass to grow, yeah, you know, yeah. the culture. Oh, yeah. I've done, we've, we've had all the all the, the culture barrels and the lights and all that are sitting upstairs covered in dust because we have done it here. And the amount of times you come in in the morning and the culture's crash, it's like, why do I bother? <laughs> I just use dried phytoplankton and done. Someone else grows it and I don't have to have the headache for it. <laughs> but, yeah, I imagine it would be very slightly better. But for the for the exercise sake and and the time consuming nature of growing phytoplankton nope absolutely not <laughs> not here yeah i i just started uh i just started growing it i i i've had this guest on dong zo who um is a is a scientist and he um he, he we talked about growing uh live phyto and and uh you know on the show and then i kind of followed up and Made sure I had all uh, all the methodology down, but you know I only have like 800 gallons of um, water in my two systems, so it's not like I'm I have to grow a crazy amount of uh, live vital. But I've been doing it for like a couple of months so far. You know, it's about 45 minutes of uh, per week in terms of all the uh, you know cleaning and then setting up new cultures. So, but yeah, I can see for a large uh, commercial scale system like yours, man, that would be. Uh, <laughs> you need to hire a person yeah. to do that, you know. Might as well just buy it. That that's exactly right. Like it's we're almost at that point now where just just the daily tasks get out of hand and and because we're online so much as well, like with the 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 coral essentials, we have a huge online presence helping people out. So you see I've got the phone that I'm streaming on now, I'm ambidextrous by the way, and I have two phones and I'm switching between typing between them, answering questions all day. <laughs> Boss is on the same sort of level. We've got other helpers and like you, you factor that in with just trying to do water changes or fragging corals and you're just running around all day. So we try and limit everything we try and do is lazy. We have to be lazy or thoughtful to be lazy um, to make, to maximize what we can actually do in a day because this time blows out so quickly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, so I want to get to Luis uh, Aceves, uh question. Uh, hopefully, I pronounced the last name uh, correctly. So the um, the question, common question, was Shane the one to cut a scoli in half and find those burrowing worms? How can you tell if a scoli has them? Oh, next time in Denver, don't leave early so we can do that shot of tequila with Meckley. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, on that last bit, I wish I was actually going. I wish I went to Denver this year. It's like I was on the fence about going, and then in the end, I was like, oh, no, I've got too much here to do. But yeah, next year it was definitely. a great show. Um, I was there. It was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, as for the um, uh, scullies and that, I've been cutting them for years, and uh, I've tried the grafting and like sticking them together. They don't grow back together. They just form two separate pieces and whatnot. But uh, yeah, it's actually the, the 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 worm you're referring to is actually a lithophaga boring mussel so they're much like the mussel that you can eat but they're smaller they create they secrete an acid and they dissolve the skeleton in the base of the coral and then they have this little tongue type thing that they spit out through into the flesh of the coral and they irritate it mm. and then they feed on the coral slime um and yeah, so you might have seen a video of that that Jamie Craggs had up in his Magna talk because he, he hit me up about it. So I had a video, so he included that. Uh, and I, I'm a huge advocate of cleaning all of the excess skeleton off solitary polyp corals because I would say at least 
of all of them. And just every, it doesn't have to be solitary polyp. Like I've seen them in all types of corals, but they're the ones that are affected the most. Mm. Um, and yeah, how you tell that they're in there is if you've got a scully going back, well, I'll just use scully for example, but this applies to Desh, Sinarina. There's so many solitary polyp corals around and it, it, they generally just recede in from the outside and they're just looking a lot flatter than they were. And it happens a few months after you get them because, well, I shouldn't say because, because that infers that this is 100% proven, but my theory as to why it's happening is in the natural reef, corals regrow a hell of a lot faster than what they will in aquariums. So this irritation that's caused by the muscle up in underneath the coral will get a chance to heal out in the ocean. And the coral has food available all the time. These solitary polyp corals are almost out feeding all of the time. So they're getting this nutrition that they need to repair the damage that these muscles are doing. And a lot of the time they can actually outgrow the muscles. And you can see that in older growth skeleton so where the polyp's sitting up on top and you've got a lot of old skeleton, there's a lot of corals they stack, it's called patellate growth. You can see right down in the bottom, you've got the fleshy polyp up here and right down in the bottom, you can actually see dead lithophaga muscles where the coral has outgrown it faster than what that muscle can irritate it. But in the aquarium, we are not getting that growth. Even on the farm, you don't get the growth that you would in the wild. So these corals actually irritate the coral, uh, sorry, these lithophaga irritate the corals faster than they can grow. And then the coral, instead of using this, you can feed it, you can give it amino acids, you can do, you can have the perfect water quality. But the energy that that coral is using to repair the damage and make slime for this lithophaga to live on is not being used to grow. So it's just using it to repair. And a lot of the times the coral just goes backwards and starts receding into the middle. So my advice, if you have a coral that's receding into the middle, find someone with a bandsaw and trim away all the skeleton and then angle it right back into the skeleton cut, angle it back into the bottom underneath the mouth and just see what you find. If that scully, for example, is sitting on a big rock get rid of the rock immediately. It all has to go. If it's not coral and not related directly to the coral, there's a really good chance you have a lithophaga in there. How, um, how, how common is it for those things to kind of spread from one coral to the next, you know, um, if you have it in a aquarium, I, it's... I don't think it's happened. Uh, it's the same probability of a giant clam spawning in your tank. If you've got giant clams spawning in your tank and you just so happen to have baby giant clams pop up it's they're a mollusk and they are they spawn exactly the same way as other mollusks so um i i think the probability of having baby lithophaga popping up all through your system is next to nothing because we don't have that happening with clams really so gotcha gotcha uh, interesting. It's just, um, you know, there's just so many pests out there that you have to worry about. And, and, um, it seems like there's, there's some new ones that kind of pop up here and there. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's mother nature, right, man. It's like, you got, uh, you know, you, you can't keep all the bad critters out of a, um, out of a, a captive, uh, reef system. It's, it's part of nature. Uh, I just noticed Amanda Meckley said that would be a great article to post on reef builders. Uh, I believe Vincent, chalet has covered that after a chat a little while ago as well 
Uh, I don't know how in-depth. I'd have to dig back and find the article again and see if it needs recovering again. Uh, maybe Vincent would be um, up to doing an update if it needs one or I can cover it again. But, yeah, um, more than happy to because I, I think it is a, a fairly common issue with wild collected um, solitary polyp corals. I also find them in hammer corals and torches a little bit as well, but not nearly as common as scullies and dash. I mean, how, how common is that, like, for uh, for scullies, you know, to uh, what percentage scullies might be infected by that sort of pest? Um, when uh, I was working for collectors that have, that collected scullies predominantly, or, or so you got different zones of the reef or different, like, latitudes where different corals are found and your scullies are typically found off the central coast of Queensland. So different collectors tend to uh, have different access to corals. So collectors on the central coast don't get very good acro typically, whereas up here we get the better acro and we don't get any scullies if you're a wild collector. Um, so when I work down there, it's not uncommon to bring back 5, 000, uh, 500 to 1,000 scullies in uh, a few day trip. And when you're trimming the corals back at the facility, I would say at least eight out of 10 have got um, lithophaga in them. And usually they're trimmed off by the collector, but sometimes they're not. And yeah, you might have one. Gotcha. Um, so this is like more of a general question for you, you know, so for the wild corals that you had collected in the past, you know, can, um, you know, and, and, and you've done a lot of diving, I assume. Can, can you um, kind of speak to the habitat details and conditions that, uh, you know, all these corals live in? Like, for instance, you know, the scolies and the LPS and, and SPS. What, what have you observed in terms of kind of like their uh, natural habitat? I think for the most part, corals are quite adaptable for to, within a range, of course. But uh, like I was saying just before about there's a lot of Acropora species coming out of here. There's, uh, it's almost unheard of that uh, Homophilia australis or Euscoli is collected uh, much further north of where they are now. You get the odd few and maybe up here collectors would be lucky to get one a dive because they just don't really exist up here um, where they are in numbers down south. But... Um, so there's, there's, the habitats, there's, the corals across the board are quite adaptable to different habitats, but I've certainly seen uh, certain things about those habitats that make those certain corals better. So uh, upper reef slope acroporas like Spaculata microlados, which is your strawberry shortcake, they are in heavy wave crashing zones and they ideally would have a lot of light and a lot of water flow and a lot of oxygen in the water and other things that a lot of people might not be aware of your acan lords micromusa lordowensis and scollies and a lot of the hammer corals actually thrive better in cooler water so um off the top of my head i can't quite convert it into fahrenheit but 25 to 26 degree water is the acceptable range um and it's about sort of 20 degrees is the common water temperature uh, for most of the year down in those southern reefs. And it can get even colder as well. Like it, it, I've been nearly hypothermic 
cold shivering on the deck of these boats above water and it's and that's where a lot of these corals are coming from so i've done some experiments uh quite a few number a few years ago now by running my tank at 21 to 22 degrees and i actually seen way better responses from these cooler water corals so um they they certainly do better with the temperature ranges they're found and and sometimes it could be the the items of food that are there whether that coral is near a river and it gets lots of uh, planktons washing out of the river. Um, but yeah, for the most part, adaptable, but they certainly would benefit if you've got a species only tank to chase that biotope of the area they're found in. Gotcha. Makes sense. You, you mentioned light, and I, I wanted to ask you this question before when we we're talking about the different types of lighting that uh, you're using in your uh, facility there. But um, what what uh, what do you guys try to key in on in terms of the lighting? Do you uh, do you lean on spectrum? You know, you think that's more important versus like par, or do you um, try to kind of take both of those you know things into the equation when you're determining the lighting for specific corals? Yeah, um, I I don't thought or how I said before about for uh, what I call my system and Christian system the, um, with the acro and everything, you'll notice there's a lot more light and those big max spec cannons. Uh, there was a, just a hell of a lot more light over the SPS system. And that's pretty widely accepted that they need that. Yeah. Um, and you notice that I was only using the Illumagic Vitamini strips over my system. And that's because I don't really hold much merit to light in uh, aquariums versus water quality. I never really have. And for the majority of my system is LPS and the 90 par, I think I get out of mm. those vitamin E strips. They are pretty close to the water and the water is shallow. So I'm getting 90 par at the coral. And that to me is fine. I'm getting really good color out of that and the rest of it I based on water quality and feeding uh, but if I crank the light up a lot more uh, I don't notice it too much zoanthids I get better color with more light in most cases so there's some zoas that I'll put under a heavier light just because they look better for sale but for the most part I haven't actually noticed um, to pull a coral uh, say a lot of the favias, I can put them under 400 par or 90 par and then put them side by side after a few weeks and I really can't tell the difference. So that's why I use just the LED strips to grow under. Gotcha. Rob Upstate, New York, thank you so much, man, for that super chat. Comment is great. Chat, always learning. Appreciate that. Um, one thing I did, uh, I also forgot to ask you about in terms of um, pH. How, um, what, what do you guys typically keep your pH at in your facility in the different uh, systems? Um, actually, our systems run really high pH, um, and this is a lot of people just go, no, nah, it's out of calibration. Your probes don't work, but no, they are actually calibrated, and our system is running 9.3 pH, or all of them run 9.38. Um, that's just because of the huge surface area. They're, they're flat tanks, and it's, yeah, that's all we can attribute it to is there's a lot of oxygen exchange or something going on there, but they've always been steadily uh, 9.1 to 9.3 that's our fluctuation and they're always there like that wow um, 
so yeah, we we've tried doing CO2 dosing. Um, we've got a, a bottle down there, and it, it didn't really budget much. So it's like we just give That's up. That's super we don't high, have a man. With it, so yeah, it really is. Wow. So yeah, we. Uh, but yeah, that mostly gets met with no, no. You need to calibrate the probes. So I'm like, they really are. <laughs> They're calibrated. <laughs> so obviously, you're not you're not um, doing anything in terms of trying to elevate that pH. It's naturally uh, elevated. Yeah, uh, that's just all how it is. Uh, Chris had just asked about um, do we still run our potassium at 500 to 550? Um, I would have to ask him. Because I know mine is running around 430 at the moment. I know he used to play with certain elements and I don't know what his system is running at the moment. I'd have to ask him. I'm not sure if I did hear him upstairs before, but um, if he pops back in, I'll ask him, but I do know that he likes to play God a lot with corals. So, um, so which is all part of the R and D of everything, I guess, is to see what makes things tick. And I know he was running K really high for a while, uh, but whether he still is, I'm not sure. Yeah, can you uh, can you share some specifics in terms of you you mentioned before that you guys are uh, testing chemicals a lot and and what have you? What what uh, any, anything specific that you can share in terms of what you're testing right now? Um, mainly the uh, the effects of ultra high dosages of things. So we get like uh, um, kind of like say a customer will come back and say, oh, like uh, my my chromium is elevated through the roof, so we've tested this one already but there's we will put a bunch of corals from our system into those little test tanks and we'll just slowly just add more chromium and it bleaches corals that's what that does <laughs> um it's just an NFLA regulator um but um we can test anything the next one i actually want to test and uh we're gonna oh, i'm gonna chat to the boys at triton about this uh because we have the ability to test elements uh neodymium I, I've had a pretty strong correlation in people's aquariums. And actually, I would love to see if uh, any one of your followers and listeners uh, have noticed. So this is only, only to see if there's a correlation between corroded and rusty magnets in your aquarium with dead corals. And I know it's been, this is a topic that's been brought up a lot, but I would love to test and see the actual uh, so neodymium is what the magnets are typically made of it's neodymium alloy usually with iron and boron i think um and i want to know if there is a neodymium uh like poisoning level like what level of neodymium is actually toxic to corals because no icp provider currently tests for it but it's in almost everyone's tanks and a lot of these magnets are exposed so I have a feeling that it's quite a toxic element in high, high levels. So um, that's the next one I'll be testing. Interesting. Interesting. So you got like a little mini lab going on there. Yeah. Oh, up here used to be a big lab. Now it's an empty room. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, what about? That's the, it was the, the CE side of it. Now that's down in Brisbane. So. What about uh, when you get RTN, STN episodes? You know, is that something that you guys are, are trying to, um, you know, Try to try to dig into a little bit more to try to better understand what causes that sort of thing. I mean, obviously it's a bacterial issue, but um, mm. you know, there, there's a company here, Aquabiomics, that um, you know we can utilize to send in a water sample and get tests back and see the different strains of bacteria, and you can see if you got any pathogenic bacteria. But is there anything that you guys are kind of like um, doing on that front in terms of R and D 
try to better understand RTN STN episodes? I would love to dabble in it. Um, it for me to do that though, I would need to get a much better microscope and be able to kind of see what's going on. But for now, the only thing I know about RTN and STN is up is what other people have told me. Um, and uh, the and and more to reflect on me personally and what I call my corals and my system is the brown jelly. I'd love to know more about that. It's something that I could add it to my to-do list and whether I ever get around to it um, and, and see what makes brown jelly tick and see if there's different strains of the bacteria that are causing it, that kind of thing. That to me, but the RTN and STN, it more refers to your uh, SPS. So, and which don't really interest me. They don't really cause, don't really bring me joy each day. So um, I want to, I tend to focus my time on squishy things and LPS. So. Everybody has their thing, right, man? It's just, uh, That's you right. know, I'm, I happen to be a stickhead, but, uh, you know, there's uh, there's a lot more out there than, than acros, but it's whatever floats your boat, so to speak. Um, yeah. You mentioned, all right, so, you know, we were just talking about bacteria and all that stuff, and, and uh, this goes back to a question NSB Reese had uh, a while ago. I, I'm just getting into it. What about the use of UV? Do you guys use uh, UV in your systems? Yeah, uh, I think... I think it's one, yeah, 150 watt Emperor Aquatics. We've got uh, one of those on each system, um, and they run 24/7. So, gotcha. Um, there's a question from uh, Martin Valen Court, I believe that's how you pronounce it. If we stay on the topic of chemistry, can we discuss the impact of elevated calcium on SPS corals? Can it cause STN if above 550? Interesting question. Um, answer problem. Yeah, I've, again, trying to actually, uh, that this is one of the reasons we set up these test tanks is to individually elevate certain elements. And yeah, I we haven't directly tested calcium in itself uh, for super high levels, but I wouldn't ever run it much more than 500 anyway. So, but yeah, if you did have it at 500, uh, I, I I don't see a point unless it was accidental, of course. I, I don't see a point to it, and I would probably I would suggest that there would be detrimental issues. You're not going to see a faster growth or anything like giving it more food or more building blocks of calcium and all that. I don't think you're going to see any benefit to it. It's only going to be detrimental. Um, there are certain elements that we can bump up a little bit to a color. Uh, like I, I like my bromide a little bit higher. I like my boron a little bit higher. Um, strontium a little bit higher. But otherwise, we're not talking big numbers here. And I think um, from normal range, like I try and keep 420 parts per million, I think a jump up to five, uh, 550 is it's way too much. So, yeah, about probably I think 480 is the highest my system's ever been. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't do it intentionally, that's for sure. Yeah, I so see they're talking about doing water changes to get it down and, and that uh... – uh, actually, it was a question that uh, Andy Bauman had before in terms of how often do you change over the water? And I guess uh, I would add to that, um, you know, what percentage of a water change do you do and how in terms of the uh, on top of that frequency? Um, so so I, I like this uh, topic of what percentage of water change do you see? If you've got a big problem in your aquarium, um, then kind of, kind of a gross analogy. If you peed in the bath 
would you want to change all of it or 10 percent of it <laughs> that's like i yeah. would change all so of it you, yeah <laughs> that's so, me personally but you know it's a... yeah 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 i'm sure there's some people out there but uh <laughs> We won't go there. Uh, basically, if I've got a problem in my system, I dump the lot and start again, or at least as much as I can. Um, and so, but to do that, you've got to let's just use calcium as an example, like we were before. So, if calcium went up to 550, and I don't know why, let's just say the dosing pump decided to go and dump a whole lot in for no reason, and I want to, I went into damage control and I want to do a water change, I would make I'd change all my water out, but I would try my best to match the parameters that I had beforehand minus the calcium. So if my alkalinity was on nine, I would make, I would buffer my water change water to nine. If my magnesium was on 1320, I would buffer it to 1320. Uh, easier when it's on the low side to start with, but yeah, uh, I'm all for doing a massive water change if you have a massive problem. Gotcha. We got some more random questions coming in and Chris from ACI is asking, have you correlated dinos with low uh, iron? Not all dinos, but, you know, I guess certain strains. Um, I don't think I've really ever had, uh, well, I say low iron, but we're always dosing it to dosing it so it exists, but never chasing the number. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a Triton result come back with iron present. It's always yeah, undetectable. It's always, right? So... Yeah, it just burns out too quickly. See, I don't think I can ever report uh, an iron level being detectable, but we do add it. So uh, I and I also haven't had dinos. So well, in this system, I've had dinos in my home aquarium many years ago. Um, so I, I mean, uh, if we stop dosing iron, I don't know if we would see dinos appear, or whether that's anecdotal. I'm not sure. Yeah, see, Reef to Sea Forever, Iron is always zero on Triton. And, um, yeah, I think pretty much every ICP that I've ever gotten, maybe one, a couple of times I've seen, you know, some Iron, but it always seems to be zero. And, and um, you know, I guess the, the, the key there, and this is um, something that Chris told me, is to uh, try to dose it 24-7, whatever you're dosing. Yeah, it's also different types of Iron as well, like this, in its different forms, like elemental forms. So, um trying to which what like whether it be iron sulfate iron two sulfate this is like different types of iron so as with a lot of elements uh yeah folks um keep uh keep dropping questions in the chat i'm gonna i'm gonna change gears a little bit here um and shane ask you you know so jake jake adams was the one that turned me on to you he was like you gotta get shane on you gotta get shane on and um so i'm, I'm curious how did, how did you guys uh how did you guys meet um, it was all, I guess, social media. Um, and it was, uh, he searched out who was doing what in Australia because uh, I think it was uh, Delua Anthony Blinoff that was over at Reefstock Denver about four odd years ago now and said, you should bring Reefstock to Australia. And then he's like, yep, ideas. So uh, where we... Uh, to, to search out and give us a hand to get reef stock off the ground and do some promotion and things like that. We sort of just started talking a lot more then. Um, but yeah, that was sort of where that relationship was made uh, through shows and social media. And then I went back over to 
uh, Mackner and did a presentation with him, I think, in Vegas it was. Yeah, Vegas. And then Denver the year after. And I haven't been back to the States since, actually. So, um, yeah, but that was it. Was pretty much about it. And yeah, we've, we've uh, yeah, just all through social media and, and what we do in the in the industry. Yeah. Now it um, it was the first time I'd been to uh, to restock this year. It was a uh, it was a great show. But um, yeah, I um, I, uh, I I I have to well, I have to look up those. Uh, I, I'm assuming your uh, your your talks, Magna and, and restock, are online someplace, but probably good listening. I don't think so. Oh, no. Um, so I, I actually tried to find the one from Vegas a while ago, and I don't think it was there. Hmm. Um, I think, I don't know, I, 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 BRS used to be in charge of filming Magna. Um, I'm not sure if they were even filming anyone that day. And I don't, and I think uh, Scott Mile High Reefer was filming uh, in Denver. It was just a fragging, like what to do with fragging. It was really early on. Um so yeah, I don't think there's a copy of any of those around. All right. But, yeah. That's, that's a bummer. Um yeah, any other questions, feel free to uh drop them in the chat. You know, so you mentioned uh Dr. Dean Miller um earlier there, Shane, you know, the uh person I had on from the uh, Living Coral uh, yeah, yep. Biobank and 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 what have you. We talked about all the different uh, bleaching events on the uh on the Great Barrier Reef. What, what's been your experience in terms of, you know, in terms of your diving and, and seeing bleaching events? Is that um, a lot more noticeable these days? Uh, so I think the last major, let's say the last major bleaching event was four or five years ago or something like that. Um, and it was, so they, they come in waves. And uh, for the most part, the recovery has been really good. There's a few reefs around that you wouldn't even know they were ever bleached mm, that's good because the of the coral cover comes back quite strong um and we've got to remember too that bleaching doesn't mean death as it, it they can recover this isn't la can come back um in the coral as if it's if the heat is sustained for a couple of weeks then the algae starts settling on top of the coral tissue and then it, the, the undesirable algae i mean starts to kill off the coral underneath and that's where you get the issues of death and um but yeah there was a lot of bleaching a few years ago you do get localized bleaching certain reefs just patches here and there just bleach out and i, I think that's the uh, the matter for all around the world um as for like stopping it i, I mean, there's nothing anyone really can do um I mean, I shouldn't. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's a lot of things that humanity can do, but I don't think humanity is prepared to do what it actually takes. And that's pretty much take a step back in time, a hundred years ago, before we, uh, or over a hundred years ago, is before we have all this industrial revolution. And if we're prepared to give up everything that we've got right now and go back to living in a cave, well, that's. I think that's where the pollution stops. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no one no one that i know is prepared to do that so uh, i think the the issues with uh if we i don't want to go down rabbit holes of what causes bleaching with whatever people say i think it's basically to do with humans um and uh but one one standout issue that i've found on the reef from diving locally is uh so up a lot of the northern part of australia is cane farms, sugarcane. 
and lots of land clearing happened from sugarcane. So the, the runoff and the, the sediment from the topsoil doesn't have the tree roots to hold the topsoil on. So and we get a lot of flooding up here. We're in the middle of what's called wet season. Yep where we consider ourselves much like a tropical um, Southeast Asian type thing where we have monsoon season and dry season. Um, and when it's monsoon season, which we're in the middle of right now, actually, no, we're coming into the end of monsoon season and the rivers are just chocolate. Everything is just brown. All of the bays are just dirty. Everything is covered in mud and runoff and silt. So that poses probably one of the biggest risks to our local inshore reefs where you see you could be diving along and you can span dust off these corals because they're it's just so much dirt being washed out of the rivers which i don't think would have happened at all uh, if land clearing wasn't done for farmland and that's i think one of the biggest really local issues but bleaching events tend to happen more on the outer reef as well gotcha Uh, I don't want to get political here, but do you think the Australian government is doing what it can to uh, help fight that fight? It's all, yeah, it's always a always a funny topic here between different different groups, whether they be like green groups or anything. Uh, we in Queensland has a massive, massive deposits of coal and coal seam gas, so we're what's one of our biggest exports. So any of the politicians in power love the cash from that. Mm. So. Um, if, if you attribute burning coal, uh, and again, like I'm not going to get into that, it's just a rabbit hole of what the hell. Um, if you attribute that, then yes, the government is doing nothing there, but because they keep the, the the coal open and whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, uh, but with, there's plenty of, I don't think money fixes anything, but they certainly have put taxes on a lot of things that, cause pollution so whether that money actually goes to making solutions i don't know i'm not too up on that but um yeah i i think farmland and stuff if they can possibly make measures to catch runoff that would be ideal i know there's a lot of revegetation projects that i've been a part of myself because uh, i find that that topic and that area of uh life quite uh important so a lot of coastal revegetation projects happen in this area. So tree planting, basically, uh, replanting the trees that were cleared to make cane land, but just replanting them on the edges to make like a barrier from the cane land. Mm. So a lot of the cane farmers are actually giving up some of their land to do this. So it's really good. That's cool. Um, have you noticed any corals that um, you know were pretty common a few years ago that are not so common uh, these days? Like any, anything stands out in your, in your mind? Um, I think for the most part, the the numbers are much the same. So just bait like uh, for like coral collection, I guess you'd say. I think the numbers for the most part are still really quite strong and there's not really a decline. But I think the size of collected corals um, is getting smaller, particularly like Scully, for example. Um, but we need to remember that the, the the zones in which corals can be collected it's not just open slather you can't just get in a boat and go anywhere you want there are zones that can be collected and it's a really it's it's not all like most of it is green so we call them green zones i'm not sure if you have a similar system in the states for uh waterways but 
we have green zones and you're not allowed to go in there. We've got other zones as well. There's like pink zones, which are research. Um, so research vessels are the only ones allowed in there. But for the most part, most of our reef is like, we have massive green zones and a lot of the good reefs are actually full protected by green zones. So where you might see a decline in a certain species of of the size of it, say like scollies used to be that big back in the day. And now you notice a lot of them are quite small. So whilst they might be getting smaller in those areas, the areas that are green zones are, yeah, I've dove them as well. And the numbers are plentiful and the scollies are gigantic. So, um, nice. yeah, that's about the only thing I can figure. But I don't think, yeah, wild collection or anything poses a risk to corals. Um, and especially now, like this, the really, really, really heavy quota uh, collection limits on on the numbers of what can be collected. So there's even further protection there. I think Australia has probably one of the most heavily regulated fisheries for not just coral, but for everything. Um, even just like table fish, mackerel, and anything like the the fisheries here are really well regulated. Makes sense. It's quite the uh, pristine, um, you know, environment out there. Definitely worth, uh, yeah. definitely worth doing that. So, um, I heard from Anya at Gallery Aquatica that you are the uh, moderator, of the biggest reef keeping Facebook page in Australia. What, uh, what's that like, man? What, uh, what are some of the common discussions? You know, clue us in in terms of uh, the uh, mindset of the Australian reef keeper out there. What, uh, what's on um, their minds these days? <laughs> for the most part i think it's much the same you get all the same sort of questions but one of uh uh i i really do enjoy watching comments from uh aussies that say things like oh why do the americans get all the good corals and it's just because <laughs> yeah i don't know i would uh, think it's, it's the it's opposite totally thing true. man yeah it is it 100 percent is like this it, i think it's just because we don't have a big reefing base in australia like uh i think the, the Facebook group's only got 15,000 people in it, um, which it's still fairly large. But of those people, I don't even know how many have an aquarium, have, have a reef tank, I mean. But, um, it's just causing, it's just causing bigger, trouble on Facebook. Is that what they're doing? Yeah, just bigger populated areas like the States. So you got more people posting coral photos of corals. So you got that um, effect of people seeing more American uh, or or photos from around the world, like just even just the German hobby base or the European hobby base in general is massive compared to us. So we're going to see these corals posted. And, I mean, I can maybe count on one hand how many really nice coral photos are posted in Australia every day. <laughs> and, and on the other hand, if you scroll down uh, overseas Facebook groups and stuff, you're going to see a hell of a lot more. And I think that's just how that notion starts but we do really have the best corals and the cheapest prices for everything so yeah now, i remember my conversation with anya I, I guess there was a um uh in terms of acropora you know all the uh the named acropora that we have here it seems like i guess there is a little jealousy on on the aussies uh part in terms of being able to have um some of those captive uh raised uh sps and maybe that's not the case in australia i guess it's more uh, you know you guys are tapping into the wild wild uh, collected stuff um yeah so the a lot of the times uh something we've noticed here so when we're wild collecting 
Um, we've got it's pretty safe to assume a lot of the acroporas come from Australia anyway. There are a small number that come from Indo, like you, uh, the is it little red Ferrari or something, and uh, red dragon acropora. That's yeah. classic. That's an Indonesian species, yeah. so we just don't have that here. But for the most part, they're coming from Australia and they're sent overseas, and then the Australians go, "Oh, vivid confetti or yeah. a home wrecker," and I'm like, "Man, that was collected here, <laughs> and it was just cooked up in a tank for." 10 years in america and you guys have got like through you propagate through necessity and you have done for many years you're well ahead of the ball game over there with propagation and farming corals because you you couldn't just go and buy a giant colony of acro like we can here but we get the wild forms so now after farming corals on this this particular farm and just seeing it we we go and get a piece of tenuous from the wild a couple of years ago and now we've got that growing out here and you realize that looks a lot like home record. <laughs> and then you real yeah. Um, and in other times we give them a funky name to put on our stock list just because we can't just call it Acropora one, Acropora yeah. two. Uh, it's a bit boring and also hard to remember. So like a, a classic example, we made one, uh, it's called we call it uh, Wonder Woman. I've never um, heard of that one. We yeah, we've got a lot of superhero names in our stock list. <laughs> and um, it is actually identical in every way, shape, and form to Vivid Confetti. So it's just it, the corals don't really have much choice as to when they're cooked up in an aquarium, whether it's cooked up here or there or there, they generally end up the same. So what got called Vivid Confetti over there, we collected a wild version of it here. We grew it out for a while and called it wonder woman and then you put them side by side it's like yeah same thing <laughs> so i'm sure that happens a lot in the states as well just between different farms and oh yeah um, uh, like that. it's yeah. like uh, you know you got the same coral that's got 10 different names you know the the whole yeah. the whole name yeah. the whole name game thing is like uh kind of hard no, it, it does it does it's it's hard to hard to keep up with but yeah a lot of times we get asked like oh why do we put names on it they're stupid i hate names or something i'm like when you've got 350 different things on a stock list, can we just need to have a bit of fun in our day and give it a name? And I just don't want to call it Acropora One, Blaster Musa Two, and oh, it just do my head in. So we give it a fun name, and it keeps our day slightly bright. Some of them are our names are in jest uh, of things that that happen, or certain certain people we name our corals after as well. <laughs> hey fun. man, you got to have fun with it, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's not. A, it's a hobby for. Uh, yeah, it's not too serious. Um, Great Bearded Reef is asking the name of that Facebook uh, page in case anybody wants to check it out. Is that a private group or is that a public group? Um, oh, it, it's. I mean, it's pretty much targeted Australians, but um, I don't think uh, so. Marine Aquarium Fanatics Australia, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a primarily Aussie group, and yeah, it's. I think it's like ten years ago or something it started, but yeah primarily australians in there gotcha so uh shane let's uh i guess we should uh we should wrap it up i know you probably are a, a very uh, busy man there this friday morning in, uh, in australia what um what advice can you um leave us with in terms of uh you know us reef keepers that want to kind of be able to get to that next level with reef keeping what what uh, what words of wisdom would you pass along given your experience farm there um i would say just Focus on your water quality and feeding. That's my, my two biggest things um, is 
if you want to see coral growth, you have to be feeding him more, uh, and and as well as your amino acids and vitamins and supplementing them for the corals that don't produce their own. That and water quality. Those feeding and water quality, uh, to me, are the pinnacle of reef keeping. And the, your lighting comes down a bit further, and flow is important. Yeah, like that. Feeding and water quality, it's, that is where it's at. And if you can focus on those and really just get them dialed in, the other stuff just comes naturally, I think. So. Cool. All right, man. Well, listen, Shane, this was, uh, this was an awesome chat. I learned a, uh, a lot, and I think everybody was, uh, was really into it as well. So thanks, man, for, uh, for taking the time yeah. to join us. No worries at all. It was fun to come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, if you make it to uh, Denver uh, one of these years, we'll uh, run into each other. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd say it would be next year. So cool. Yeah, we'll get out of there. All right, folks. Well, that's going to do it for this show. I want to thank uh, Shane for being on the live stream. I also want to thank both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for sponsoring it and supporting the show. I also want to thank all of you out there for tuning in, especially the um, um, folks that made the contributions via the Super Chat. Thank you. Thank you. Um, also, a big thank you to Paul, who is the moderator as well as the president of the Boston Reefer Society. Um, please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so, so important to this hobby. Uh, finally, I want to let you all know that all episodes of Rapid Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Rapid with Reef Bum live stream will be on Thursday, March 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Adam Derrickson from Battle Corals, Battle Corals. So that should be another great show. I'm also having a, uh, a live sale this Sunday on YouTube. Um, some great deals going on with some SPS frags, some, some LPS frags as well. That's Sunday, March 12th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you want to check out the full schedule of upcoming guests for Wrapping with Reef Bum, visit reefbum.com under the YouTube section. So until next time, be safe and be well, and we'll see you next time. Adios.